case you don't remember me, my name is Dan. Honored to serve as pastor here and uh, had the thrill of having some weekends out of town, some vacation time, rested and um, refreshed, and um, also very, very grateful for uh, church leaders who are quite gifted in uh, teaching the Bible and We'll um, start a series here today together called Jesus is Famous, and we're going to look at the encounters that Jesus had in the Gospels, uh, specifically the Gospel of John, that really uh, began the whole idea that Jesus is famous and that through these encounters, through these five conversations we saw people's lives changed. And when I think about, um, when I think about whether or not people generally… And is everybody doing okay? Everybody all right? You look extra good today. I think I just, I just missed you, that's all. That's, um, when I think about, and I wonder sometimes too, maybe some of you have this reaction too, when I think about people who are encountering Christianity, I often wonder to myself, what, encou- what are they really encountering? Um, specifically, when someone encounters evangelical Christians, like what are they encountering? And um, while Pastor Yon and I were, were um, preparing and presenting our podcast um, this past week, we came across some interesting data, and that is that when evangelical Christians, people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, or I should say this, they identify themselves as Christians, um, when they are asked the question, is sex outside of marriage wrong, 94% of those people identifying themselves as Christians said, yes, it's wrong. Those same people, when asked, is Jesus God? 43% of them said, he's a good teacher, but he isn't God. Now, these are people who are, and I don't don't intend to um, um, demean or belittle these people, but these are people who are identifying themselves as Christians, right? So, here's here's why I brought that up, because it appears to me that even people who identify themselves as Christians, to them, they've encountered Christianity as a set of moral values and standards, but they haven't necessarily encountered Jesus, the living God. You see what I mean? Like, so it makes me wonder, like, when people are kind of encountering the Christian faith, who or what are they really encountering? And I have kind of come to believe, or I'm prone to believe, that what people think that they have encountered is a set of standards that are moral standards, perhaps now even political standards, or um, a set of convictions that somebody says, I agree with, and I'm going to adopt them for my life, and I'm going to make sure that I impose them on other people. That's what people think when they encounter Christianity. But, that's not how Jesus became famous. And uh, when we uh, talk here among our church family about what we envision, like why does our church exist? You'll, and if you go through our roots track, you'll get a good heavy dose of this from Pastor Yon. Why does our church exist? Well, we exist 
to help make Jesus famous. Now, I want you to kind of tune in, if you would, to the word help. That word is there on purpose. And the reason it's there on purpose is because we don't believe that we are primarily responsible for making Jesus famous. The Holy Spirit is primarily responsible for making Jesus famous. And then what do we get to do? Everybody, what do we get to do? Based on our, we get to help. That's the only one I'm going to answer for you. The rest of the, the, rest of the message, I'm going to wait for your answer on those. I'm just giving you some special help to get started. We help make Jesus famous. We do what the church does to contribute to helping make Jesus famous, but it's the Holy Spirit that helps somebody see with their eyes and helps somebody believe and adore in their heart. The Holy Spirit does that, right? That's how, um, that's how it happens. So, uh, in the Gospel of John, we're going to spend five Sundays in the Gospel of John looking specifically at people who encounter Jesus. Um, check this out. This is interesting here. Um, this is what Jesus gets told. Somebody says to Jesus, you can't become famous if you hide like this. The backstory is an interesting but not relevant to our conversation today. If you can do such wonderful things... If you can, and we believe you can, and you just demonstrated that you did, then show yourself to the world. So, um, we are going to see and savor who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, specifically through conversations that come when somebody encounters Jesus. And here's my hope, that when you and I think about the Christian faith, we think of specifically a life-changing Jesus who accomplishes something that we could not accomplish on our own. These things that are so wonderful that um, we know Jesus becomes famous. So how did Jesus become famous, and how did He show Himself to the world? One of the ways He did that we see in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John um, lists these encounters. Uh, the first one that we'll look at specifically is the encounter that, the, that Jesus has with Nathaniel, who's a student. And um, not only is he a student, he kind of, at the beginning, he kind of em- what's the word? Um, He gives off a vibe as a skeptic. And Jesus has this conversation with Nathaniel, and and I'll give you the heads up. It's a life-changing encounter, but we're going to uh, spend our time looking at this encounter with Jesus, and this is important. This message and this encounter is for those of you who find yourself a little bit skeptical or even a lot skeptical. Not too long ago, we, 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 um, we talked specifically about the, 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 um, the man who had faith in Jesus, and then he asked for help with his unbelief, and there was this tension there, right? This particular conversation is with somebody who isn't holding any tension. They kind of cherish their doubts. They're protecting their doubts. This is somebody, Nathaniel, who... Um, who is a skeptic. And so this message is for those of you who are skeptic, or, or, or you may not be a skeptic, but you love somebody who is. Or maybe you live with somebody who is. Maybe you're sitting next, don't move a muscle, look straight ahead. Maybe you're sitting right next to somebody who is. Just look straight ahead, don't give away. It's also possible that where you live and work and play and 
do your thing in between Sundays that you are being challenged by a skeptic. I want you to know this. We, among the church, North Central, uh, North Central Church family, we love skeptics. We love you. We don't look down on you. We embrace. Some of us were skeptics before we weren't skeptics, right? Is that, is that anybody here to, today? Who, who of you were skeptics before you weren't a skeptic? Would you raise your hand? That seems like a lot. Some of you are like, I don't know about this question. <laughs> See what I did there? You're skeptical about the question. So, um, this encounter with Jesus, this is so important, takes place in a culture, a backdrop, a background, where the meaning of life in the Greek culture, the, um, to, to discover, the meaning of life was to discover, study, and think about the natural order of the universe. Let me say that again. This is a culture, the backdrop of the culture where, Nathan, where we find Nathaniel is a culture, the Greek culture, where the meaning of life is to discover and discern and kind of dwell on the order of the universe. And that word, the order of the universe, is the word logos. Logos. Say that with me. Logos. A plus. Very well done. Logos. So, that's the background. This, this is so important. This is, this is going to set up everything that we're going to read here in, in the Gospel of John. So, third time through. There's Greeks. The culture has a particular way of living. Their meaning of life is to discover the order. The universe has order. The universe has meaning. And you have to discover it, discern it, and then dwell on it. And that's your reason for living. That's the highest uh, form of existence. So, you with me? That's what Nathaniel and Jesus, that's the culture that they're in. And then I want you to read this bomb that gets dropped, if you would. I want you to discover, I want you to look, by the way, do you know who is the best at discovering, discerning, and dwelling on the meaning of life? The elites. The super smart, the super rich, the super well-connected, those people who were in power are still in power, they're the ones who are rising up this ladder of um, maybe Gnosticism. But then Jesus shows up, starts dropping haymaker bombs on this culture. And it starts even before that in the Gospel of John when um, you, you see how Jesus is described. Look what God reveals in this culture. Look at this haymaker uh, bomb that's dropped. This is the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. What's the Word? Logos. So when you and I read this, if you're kind of a uh, um, just a even an generic Christian, you read this and you're like, oh, this is good. This is where we learn about Jesus in the beginning. But if you're a Greek, you stop. You already stopped. In the beginning was the Logos. What does that even mean? Where was, how was there a beginning? The, the Logos already existed. Then the Word, Logos, was with God. And the Word, Logos, was God. This is actually going to get even more intense for the people who are uh, hearing this for the very first time and reading this for the very first time. Check this out. So the word Logos became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's 
one and only Son. You see what's happening here? I hope you do. I hope I gave you enough contrast. You see what's happening here? These people who believe that Logos is just a natural order of the universe are hearing for the first time that that order of things is not a generic philosophy or principle to be intellectually pursued. It is a person to be encountered a person to be in relationship with. This, is, this logos, this meaning of life order of things is not an intellectual pursuit. And this is massive. This logos is actually a person to have relationship with, and this person has relationship with anybody from anywhere, from any background, from any, um, any rank in the, the ladder of status. And it allows us, this, convert, this, this starting point allows us to address, for the skeptic, there are two problems that Jesus, um, that we see in this encounter with Jesus from Nathaniel, and then Jesus kind of describes a prescription for the problem that the skeptic has. And this problem that he has is, um, is going to show up pretty easy. He starts with, and this is important for all of us, the, one of the most fundamental questions of all of life. Let's um, check this out. Where should we look for answers to life's most important questions? Where do we look? Um, not only, so this, so this question is not only what are the answers, do you see the difference? This is like, where do we even look? Where do we find answers for life's most important questions? And today we have this surging in our culture here in the West, here specifically in the United States, we have this surging um, uh, template of answers called contemporary critical theory. So many academics and social justice activists are saying the answers to a lot of life's most difficult questions are found in critical theory. Um, for others, uh, the answers are found in advocating and becoming active for social justice. Or answers are found in world religions. Some people are looking for answers to life's most important questions in traditional moral views or values. Certainly, we know that people are kind of throwing themselves all in on academia and sciences. And t oh, and TikTok. You can... It's on the list. Let's not skip it. Uh, so to encounter Jesus personally, we start in, God, in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 1, and it's after Philip has met Jesus. Philip meets Jesus. Jesus says, hey, Philip, come and follow me. And then immediately following that encounter, he wants to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus. Okay? So we're going to meet Nathaniel, and this is how it goes. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So he's not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be the center of academia, the center of religious uh, authority. This would be, Jerusalem would, would be where if you matter in any way in life and culture, where do you think you live? Jerusalem. So he's in Galilee and he finds Philip and he says to Philip, come, Philip, follow me. Philip was, was from Bethsaida. Andrew and Peter's hometown, and then he starts to think to himself, I'm going to find Nathaniel. 
When he gets to Nathanael, he tells him, we've found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. This is the person that we've been waiting for. This is the person the prophets have told us about that uh, eagerly anticipated. His name is Jesus, and he's the son of Joseph from Nazareth, and here's where he loses Nathanael. And I wonder if he, Nathaniel, he had Nathaniel all the way up to here, right? There's this person, we've been waiting for this person, it's been prophesied, our whole, all of our families, and especially if you have any roots in this Hebrew faith of ours, he is here, his name is Jesus, oh, and also he's, he's the son of Joseph who lives in Nazareth. Now, the Christian faith has an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? And here Philip is telling Nathaniel, it's Jesus. He's the logos. He is the, he is the meaning of life. He is the purpose. He is the order of things. It's a person. The Word became human and made His home among us, and we've discovered Him. We've already met, we've already met Him. And so, Nathaniel, what does he do? Does he celebrate? Does Nathaniel say, let's get to him right away? Does he fall on his knees overwhelmed with the person and work of Jesus as the Holy Spirit's revealing it to his heart? Does he renounce all previous secular answers that he rested his hope in? Does Nathaniel say, finally, this person, the answer to life's biggest questions have now been revealed? Well, of course not. Like so many other skeptics, something else surfaces, and we see it in His words. And what's revealed by His words is some prideful contempt. Nathaniel demonstrates with his words that he has a level of self-righteous snobbiness. If you're taking notes, write that down. It's super fun to say. Self-righteous snobbiness. And for a skeptic, for a skeptic, and if you're one, I want you to hear me very carefully because this is important. We who are skeptical can sometimes suffer from a level of self-righteousness or even cynicism, which is no truth is ever really true. And for whatever reason that is, it's very, very common for a skeptic to be a little bit snobby over information, what someone says is the truth, perhaps where the source is. In fact, it's kind of like somebody saying, I'm from Jerusalem, so I can't be learning or accepting anything that comes from Galilee. Like, I'm from here, and this is coming from there. This is coming from the other side, so I can't possibly learn or accept anything from the other side. So, um, check this out. This is what he says. This is how we discover where he's coming from. This is the first thing Nathaniel says, Nazareth. He doesn't say, Jesus, tell me more about Jesus, or how do you know? The first thing he says is, ew, ew, did you say Nazareth? And I imagine somebody in our culture now saying, ew, did you say evangelical Christian? Ew, did you say United States? Ew, did you say from uh, a foreign country? Ew, did you say from Salve? I am, I, it's an ongoing joke. It's an ongoing joke. 
I lived in Solvay. I love Solvay. I still live really close to Solvay. And by the way, the, United, the state fair is in Solvay. So we know God's hand is resting in Solvay. It's a joke if you're from Solvay. Can anything good? So he immediately sees himself as more informed, more special, more intellectual. His race, his background, his ethnicity, his, we don't know what's feeding this, but he thinks that he's better and that the truth can't come from a little place like Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Imagine him saying, oh my goodness, I can't wait to hear this absolute nonsense that's, come, that's going to come out of Philip's mouth. Clearly, he looks down on a segment of people. Clearly, he um, believes that they're less than him. Clearly, he harbors, great movie, Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Against, I mean, did you see the movie? How many of you saw the movie, Pride and Prejudice? This is it. Ew. Ugh. Blech. They're from... This is what's happening in Nathaniel's heart when he's told that Jesus comes from the other side of the tracks and he can't receive it. And there's some contempt. And today, this represents some people's view of Christianity, right? The Christian folks, you know what they did? They checked their brain at the door. They left it right at the door. Oh, the Christians are anti-science. They have no brain. It's all fantasy faith. That's how some people view Christianity. There's reasons for that. Some are good, some not that great. Or some people who, 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 this is representing Nathaniel, believing that it cannot be true. This cannot be the person. This can't be the Logos. This cannot be the person who uh, we've been waiting for, the Messiah. It can't be true because of where he's coming from, and we can't embrace someone who's less than me or lower than me. So, a skeptic. You, if you're a skeptic, or if you know, the skeptic's pride oftentimes prevents them from seeing, knowing, and believing the truth. Because of um, their perception of themselves. It's very dangerous to their own pursuit of truth. Why? And this is why. This is why it's dangerous. Because with that kind of pride, a skeptic cannot hear or receive truth because of who or where it's coming from. Um, and this is, of course, this is a side topic, but this is a massive issue with something like um, contemporary critical theory. But the second problem for a skeptic is this. A skeptic has two problems. The second problem here is conflicting convictions. Um, this is super interesting. When we learn um, here what happens uh, to Nathaniel. First of all, um, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible is Genesis. And in Genesis, there's a harsh culture um, in fact, some people would say it's gory. Some people would say, have you ever read through the Old Testament and gone like, ooh, wow, is that supposed to be in there? I often joke about there's a scene in the Old Testament where um, a king gets stabbed in his gut. And then the Scriptures, this is too gory. I, there's no reason to tell you what happens. And then the sword gets stuck in his, he pulls his hand out. And you just start thinking things like, 
Ooh, that's so gory. Do you know, it's even worse than that in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we see a culture that is pretty um, different from ours. One of the things that's different about the Genesis culture, the culture in the book of Genesis, is something called primogeniture. Primogeniture. Primogeniture means that your status and wealth is preserved if you are able to give that to your firstborn son. And it also means that your firstborn son has all the value and wealth to the family. And that sons who aren't the first son, they aren't the primo son, right? They're the second or third or whatever, have far less importance, far less significance, far less value. So, if you're firstborn, you have the status, the power, the wealth, the influence. Does that make sense? Also happening in the culture in Genesis is the hero women were the women who were able. These are the women who had value and worth, and they only had value and worth only if they could bear a child. And so if you were a woman in that culture who was barren, you had no value and you had no worth. You were unwanted. And that is... Incredible when you think about if you are a younger son or a barren woman in the Genesis culture, you're despised because you don't bring any value and worth to the family. And then in the New Testament, something starts to come alive that has been indicated or kind of pointed to in the Old Testament all along, and that is in Christianity, it's the opposite of that. God normally chose the younger son. And there's a whole list of examples for the sake of time that I, that I won't show you. God normally chooses the underdog in the Old Testament. And then, eventually, He saves the world through His only perfect underdog. He saves the world. Not through a king, but through the king of kings who lowered himself and emptied himself and became the weakest and most unwanted of them all. But God in the Old Testament regularly chose the younger sons and the barren women. And so listen, if you're in, the, um, if you're in Bible culture and you're starting to read that Jesus is loving and caring for and, and, and elevating younger sons and barren women, you're starting to think, what's happening here? This is different. This is flipping everything upside down. Jesus is countercultural. Jesus says, I'm using, I'm healing, and I am going to be rescuing with underdogs. Barren women and unwanted sons. I am going to save them, use them, rescue them. I'm going to use them to rescue the last the weak and the unwanted. Jesus is countercultural, and He's blowing up the culture here in the New Testament. By the way, um, when Jesus comes along, He starts saying things like this. Hey, you all, you've got enemies? This is my idea. This came from my Father in heaven. Don't kill them. Love them. Jesus starts saying things like, hey, you all, um, you know the weak that are among you? Don't crush them. Care for them. And the priests who were trying to advocate for Jesus' teaching to the kings, the kings thought the priests were crazy. 
You're nuts. Why would we ever do that? Jesus is countercultural, and he's flipping everything upside down, and he says, love your enemies, don't kill them. Care for the weak and unwanted, don't crush them. And this is all a part of this bomb that goes off in the culture when we see. So, so this, is, this is why this is important. So, if you are a skeptic or you know a skeptic, and you like that part of Jesus' teaching, right? You, um, maybe even you live by this aspect of Jesus' teaching, which is every human has dignity, value, and worth, and that someone should fight for the weak. Somebody should be a voice for the voiceless. Somebody should want the unwanted. Somebody should care for those who are last and weak, right? Our whole culture is full of godless people who live by those, uh, those convictions, right? Social justice activists um, who say, this is why we exist, to do good in the world and help lift up these people who've been stepped on, who are in the margins. And your main mantra in all of life is, be nice and do good. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to mention this morning that that entire idea didn't come from an ancient culture. It came from Jesus who was blowing the ancient culture up. That conviction came from Jesus. He is the one. Christianity is the one that flipped the culture of crushing the unwanted and disposing of the weak. Christianity is the one that did that. So, um, if that's the fruit of Jesus' teaching, right? The, the fruit of Jesus' teaching, be good, um, do justly, um, be nice to people. That's not the entirety of the Christian me- message. I'm going to put it this way. That's the fruit of the message of Jesus. And it's important for those of you who are skeptics or those of you who know a skeptic, it's important that you don't just allow yourself to pick the fruit from the tree of Jesus' life and teaching, but that you actually uh, uh, inadvertently cut off and sever the root of His teaching, which is that Jesus didn't come to help to inspire you and I to be good and be nice. Jesus came primarily not just to inspire us, but to save us to save us, um, not to inspire us to be better people. And it's important that you don't accept His teaching and then reject the reason He came. So vital, so important. Um, and I wonder how many people would just be, that would blow their mind to think that they're accepting Jesus' um, social teaching, but rejecting the purpose in which He came, which is to rescue, not just inspire or to model good behavior. And I wonder if you'd open your heart to the root of why Jesus came. I wonder if um, you would accept the reality that the Scriptures teach that not only did Jesus show us how to treat the unwanted and the weak, but He also showed us that we ourselves are weak to save ourselves. He came to rescue us. That He Himself came to rescue us from death not just to inspire you to be nice and to do good. The essence of Christianity is different than be nice and do good. The essence of Christianity is captured. Look at this, the way that this is captured by uh, one of our, um, uh, one, one helpful author and pastor, theologian, Tim Keller. He says this, the essence of what makes Christianity different from every other religion and form of thought 
is this. Every other religion says if you want to find God, if you want to improve yourself, if you want to have higher consciousness, if you want to connect with the divine, however it's defined, you have to do something. But Christianity is not just for the strong. It's for everyone, especially for people who admit that where it really counts, they're weak. The gospel is the good news announcement of the exact opposite, that Jesus came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So God's main work is through underdogs, not through um, and not for the elites who live in a palace. His main method of working was incarnation. God himself took on flesh. He became one of us. The logos, the purpose of life, the explanation for how the universe works, everything that we would ever need to know about the meaning and value of life dwells with us in the form of a person where God took on skin and was called Jesus, God who is with us. Why did he do that? He didn't do that so that we could think different and we could ascend to some higher philosophy and pursue a, a, a sharper intellect, although all that's included. Instead, his main message was an announcement about good news, not about being good people or nice people, but instead, Christianity is not only for high achievers. Christianity is not just for hard chargers. It's for everyone, especially the weak and those who are willing to admit, I can't save myself. I don't know about you, but I have trouble getting over the common cold. It is not hard for me to believe that I also can't get over the common separation from God, (laughs) that I can't do what I need to do to make that, to fix that. So, to those of you or to those of you who know somebody who is sick with skepticism, we look here at Jesus' prescription and here's what he says, you need to be deeply seen and you need to be deeply known. And that's what Nathaniel needed. Well, how do we know Nathaniel needed that? How do we know that that's what he was experiencing and Jesus had this kind of prescription for him? The reason is because we get to see what Jesus tells him. When he finally meets Jesus, Nathaniel and Jesus finally meet, here's what we see. As they approach, Jesus says, as Nathaniel's kind of approaching him, Jesus says, now, here is a genuine son of Israel. Here's a man of complete integrity. And we have to think that Jesus is commenting on somebody who wants to get it right. A skeptic who doesn't believe the answer is going to come from Nazareth, but who wants to get it right. Who doesn't want to accept really any answer, but who wants to say, I'm going to accept the answer. I want to be very careful. I want the truth, not one of the many um, uh, subjective truths, but I want the the truth. And Jesus is commenting, and here's a guy who is, is a man of integrity. In his skepticism, Jesus is also pointing out that he has a level of honesty and sincerity. And Jesus says to him, I see you. And then Nathaniel says, wait a second. Uh, we've never met. Those are my words. We've really never met. So question, Jesus. First question, uh, how do you know about me? I mean, people have already been talking about you and you're becoming famous and I'm kind of shocked to hear that you're from that low-life town of Nazareth. 
You're not from Jerusalem. I was looking for you in the temple, and I was looking for you in, of course, all these other um, sages on the stages, but you're telling me that you're the Messiah, and somehow you know about me? And Jesus replied, well, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Uh, uh, um, Nathaniel, I saw you before you saw me. Hey, Nathaniel, I found you before you found me. I knew you before you knew about me. And we see that Jesus is doing something extraordinary. Now, we don't know exactly what Nathaniel was doing over in and under the, the tree. We're not sure exactly, but it must have been something deeply personal, sincere. It must have been something meaningful to Nathaniel. He must have been thinking, no one ever noticed me, especially God. Now, again, if you're a skeptic, this is so important. This is a good representation of how Jesus is saying to you, or God through Jesus is saying to you, I see you. I see your questions. I see you wrestling with the truth. I notice your honest efforts to get answers and to want the right answers. And I can imagine Jesus saying to you specifically, I hear your questions. They're sincere. I know they come from a sincere heart. Maybe he's saying, I understand you, and I see and hear and understand your fears and your hesitations. Jesus knows you deeply, even if you know him hardly at all. He knows you deeply. He sees you. Whatever your life is under the fig tree, whatever it is that you think that you're struggling with internally, personally, on your own, by yourself, Jesus already sees it, He already knows it, and He is already in pursuit of you by His Holy Spirit. How do we know that? We see it. This is how Jesus encounters the skeptic. This is what He says to the skeptic. Jesus knows you deeply. So, after Jesus says, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. I saw you before you found me. I knew you before you knew about me. Look what happens to Nathanael. Then Nathanael exclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Something comes alive in his heart, and he makes this conversion transition. Now, why the change of heart? Maybe it's because Nathaniel had already doubted some of the other answers he had been given about the meaning of life and the logos. Perhaps um, it's possible that you have doubted the answers. I love one of the things that Tim Keller says, and I think he probably got this from C.S. Lewis, but if you have doubts about Jesus or about the Christian faith, don't ever forget to doubt your doubts. And it's possible that Nathaniel started to doubt his doubts. It's possible that Nathaniel started to think through um, and really doubt life's most important answers like love is a feeling, follow your heart. Or life, maybe he was doubting solutions like the meaning of life is to do good in the world. Or maybe he's doubting this message, there is no objective truth. There's only one's perceived reality. And someone's perceived reality can't be wrong. And it's possible that Nathaniel's like, eh, that doesn't, that's not logical, it's irrational. I'm not tracking with that. 
but it seems likely that he already discovered Jesus is not a new philosophy to adopt. He is not, instead, it is a new and personal relationship with someone who knows him and accepts him. So, look at this last thing that Jesus says to him. Jesus' prescription is this, you need my help more than you think you do. So, after Nathaniel says, okay, there you are, Rabbi, son of the living God, you are the, for sure I see that um, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, you don't only need my help, you need more help than you think. What does he mean by that? Jesus says, you need my help overcoming more than you think you need help with. In other words, you need my help more than only overcoming loneliness and isolation. You need me more than you think to just, just to believe, uh, belong and be seen. Uh, you need me more than you think you do where you think possibly I'm going to answer some of the troubling questions about life. In other words, you may be following me because I meet one of your felt needs. Perhaps someone starts following Jesus, and there's all kinds of reasons, right? We used to, uh, when I was serving at a, at a, at a church a um, long, long time ago, we used to have people at the end, we would say, how many of you want to receive Jesus? And we would say, raise your hand, and then we would lead them in the sinner's prayer, and then we'd have them come forward, and then we would go off to a side room, and we would pray for all these people who said, I want to receive Jesus. And we found that all very, 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 no, let me put it this way, the vast majority of them weren't answering that question with their hand raised. The vast majority of them were coming up and describing needs they had and they wanted Jesus to either meet their needs or the church to meet their needs or someone to just kind of listen to them. What do I mean by that? People were responding to Jesus because they had a felt, felt need and they thought, here's a way for Jesus to meet my felt need. And Jesus is saying, I do more than that. I do more than that. If you're feeling lonely, I do more than help you get rid of loneliness. If you are um, having some uh, trouble being inspired, I do more than just inspiring you. If you're having some trouble feeling better, I'm going to help you feel better. But instead, the longer you follow me, Jesus says, the more you'll come to discover you need me for something even greater than any of those surface needs. I need, I, I, you need to be rescued from death and separation from God forever. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus asked him, do you believe this, Nathaniel, just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? just because I noticed you? Is that why? You will see, as you follow me, you will see greater things than this. And then Jesus gives this wild, can I show you this wild imagery that Jesus gives him? Check this out. This is where you're like, I'm so happy, Jesus. What? Huh? But this is kind of cool. So Jesus asks him, do you believe this? Oh, I just said that, right? Um, I do more than making you feel better. He says, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. We don't need to study this. You can study this. It's interesting. But here's what that basically means. I am the one who helps reconcile those who are far from God back to relationship with the Creator who made you. I am the stairway that gets people back into right relationship with God. I'm not just helping you feel good or inspiring you to do good. There's more when you come to know me. So, so listen, I mean, isn't it obvious? Let's not be like Nathaniel, right? Let's not um, scoff at the answers 
And some of you might rightly think, Pastor Dan, why would I receive any spiritual help, insight, or teaching from you? Who are you? Fair question. I lived in Solvay also. Fair question. <laughs> but you know that in the Old Testament, God, someone told, the, God told someone the truth through a donkey. I, I can do better than that, I feel. And what we see here is that um, it's our, we get to, we get to um, reject allowing ourselves to be blinded by contempt and our pride and our prejudice. It's important. If you're a skeptic, I just want to urge you. I want to urge you. I want to urge you. Consider this. Consider the mistake it might be to only ever consider Christianity outdated or somehow too unsophisticated for you. Don't be like Nathaniel and push back on Christians or Christianity because you don't want to be associated with those people from Nazareth. These views are toxic to discovering the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. Um, these views are toxic to answering life's most fundamental questions. Now, God knows that you might be covertly under the surface searching for the real truth. God knows that um, you might be subtly pretending in your life not to really care. But it's okay to admit that you're unsatisfied with the answers that you've been given, the answers that you've perhaps stumbled upon, the answers that you're kind of holding on to as the meaning of life. And it's also, it, it, it's also okay to admit that you're curious about the rabbi from, from Nazareth. We were all curious. The global church was all curious at one time. And Jesus was pursuing us. And why is, why is receiving, seeing, and adoring Jesus important? Why is that life-changing? Because He accomplished something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He ultimately paid. He absorbed God's wrath. The wage of sin is death. And every first Sunday of the month, we remember that. You've got some elements near you there at the chair, and if you wouldn't mind reaching over and grabbing those, we're going to take some time here to remember exactly why it is that Jesus is far more than who we ever thought we needed Him to be. While you're pulling that apart, You've got two elements in your hand. And if you are um, someone who has placed your faith, you have transferred your trust from trusting yourself or um, a person or a thing to save you, and you have transferred that trust and rooted it in Jesus, who He is and what He's done, then we want to invite you to join with us in remembering His um, atoning, His meaningful substitute sacrifice. But if you don't, if you haven't transferred your trust yet, you're still not quite sure who Jesus is or what He's done or where you kind of, whether or not you trust in some of your works or the traditions of the church or the teachings and the laws of a religion, then we, we certainly encourage you to hold off until you can fully uh, rejoice with those whose hearts 
that are fully belong to Jesus. It doesn't mean that if you're struggling with your faith that you can't participate. It doesn't mean that if you have ever had any questions about where you're at in your faith, it simply means if you haven't rested your trust in Jesus to save your soul, to, to actually reconcile you back to God, then there will be a moment where you can, God willing, and then rejoice with everybody who's receiving communion. So this is not closed to those who don't belong to North Central Church. Instead, it's wide open for all people who believe, trust, and rest their faith in Jesus. You've got those two elements in your hand. They're meaningful. They're valuable. They teach us and show us. And I wanted to um, remind you what Jesus said about these elements. Would you bow your heads with me and listen closely to the, to the words describing this remembrance? On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And he didn't say, I've got this bread, I want you to be nice to people. He didn't say, I've got this bread, and I want you to be kind, polite. I want you to care about the weak, and I want you to um, love your enemies. Of course, he taught that, but here's what he said. He broke it. And he pieces in pieces, and he said, "This is my body. This broken piece is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Would you receive that symbol of Jesus's broken body together? In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant between God and His people, an agreement confirmed with my blood." Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you receive that symbol of his shed blood, his sacrifice, his substitute? Now, church family, we're going to pray together and we're going to sing together. And I invite you to do both. Some of you perhaps are a skeptic. Would you stand with me? Um, while you're doing that, I want to invite you to do something. If you're a skeptic, I want to invite you to pray today. Let somebody pray with you. We're going to have a team of people up here that are prepared to pray with you, a prayer of faith. They're going to agree with you in faith. They're going to put their mustard seed size faith together with your mustard seed size, uh, size faith and believe that God heals, transforms, changes and I invite you, if you're a skeptic or if you love a skeptic or you live with a skeptic or you're being challenged by a skeptic, I want you to slip out of your seat and let us pray with you and let us um, pray a prayer of faith with you. Also, we want to pray with you if you are depending, you are uh, in need of God to do something to intervene for you, to bring healing spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. You need God's intervention. He has brought healing to us, not just spiritually in bringing us back to Him, but also in making us whole. In the Scripture, that word is shalom, wholeness, peace, fullness, and joy is available to you, and God can bring it to you through divine intervention. We believe that He does that because he's gracious. So, lots of people here. Uh, we're prepared to pray for any one of you. And, and, and join us while we're singing. Slip right out of your seat and let us 
pray together. Let's be a praying church. Let's be a rejoicing church, not just that is singing, but also uh, not just saying things to God, but also hearing from Him as well. Let's sing and pray together.